we're finishing up a series of sermons today about Thanksgiving. And this last week, I got to spend some time, you know, having Thanksgiving with family, but I also got to spend some time with one of my buddies in a deer blind uh, in Kentucky, and we were hunting, and one of the things I love most about hunting is we actually, when I separate from my buddy, we go to different sides of the farm, because then I'll start to read while I sit there. I, it's relaxing to me. I'm not necessarily in for it for the deer. I'm in there for, to unplug my mind and to, to kind of de-plug and unplug and leave the phone in the truck and, and, and to read. And one of the books that I was reading this week, it got me thinking about one of the books that I've read in the past. They're kind of connected. And that particular book is this one. It's called The Millionaire Next Door. The Millionaire Next Door. And I, I don't know if you ever read it. It's a little old, but this book is a fan. I can't speak today. Help me out here. Fascinating read. I'm sorry. Woo, struggling with that word today. All right, it's a fascinating read. Uh, the authors, Dr. Thomas Stanley and Dr. William Denko, wanted to discover who are the millionaires in the United States and how did they become millionaires. And I love it because of the research in this book. And I know that sounds kind of funny, but, but they have some very interesting insights and they highlight some different things that just make you kind of think. And the book I was reading that reminded me of this one even quoted them. Uh, but the, the book, This Millionaire Next Door, it begins by saying this. 20 years ago, we began by studying how uh, people became wealthy. That's what the author said. Initially, we did it just as you might have imagined, by surveying people in so-called upscale neighborhoods uh, across the country. And then they said, in time, we discovered something a little strange, a little odd. They said many people who live in expensive homes and they drive luxury cars do not actually have much wealth. And then we discovered something even a little bit weirder than that, they said. It says many people who have a great deal of wealth do not even live in those upscale neighborhoods. And here's the part of the quote that really got me. They said this. They said most people have it all wrong about wealth in America. They said wealth is not the same as income. If you make a good income each year and spend it all, you're not getting any wealthier. You're just living high. Wealth is what you accumulate and not what you spend. And I thought that was interesting. So what did these authors say made these people millionaires in the rest of the book? Right? Well, the first thing is this. They said this. They use budgets meticulously. They use budgets. They said that when you started sharing this information around the country in different seminars, people would ask, why would people who have millions budget? Well, the, the answer is very simple, and we probably could guess the answer. Budgets are how they became millionaires in the first place. But then they said even further, budgets are how they maintained their millionaire status. So that's one way, right, that they became millionaires. The second way is this. They learned to control their spending. That's what these authors, when they researched, this is what they figured out. The metaphor that they used in the book is that people who have limited income but become millionaires have a good offense. Right? They have a good offense. 
They, they attack it. They go out and they make as much money as they can, but they also have a good defense, they said. They lower their spending considerably. Right? And finally, the biggest reason millionaires become millionaires, according to this book, is simply this. Number three, they define wealth differently. They define wealth differently. The biggest reason that they become millionaires is the way that they define their wealth. Right? The average millionaire, they said, wealth is not an abundance of material possessions, big homes, luxury cars, vacations, things, right? materials. They said wealth is the money you have in the bank after you paid all of your bills. And this is where it gets really interesting, and this is, this is where I kind of want to dig in here. The author said uh, there was a phrase used by many millionaires when they were doing their research, when they were doing their interviews, that they described people who lived way beyond their means. It was this phrase, and I love it. Big hat, no cattle. Big hat, no cattle. Now, let me explain this to you city folks. A phrase that you might hear out west is big hat, no cattle, but it puts a picture in your mind of a guy who looks the part, right? We know what we're talking about, right? It puts a picture in your mind of a guy who looks the part. They, they have a nice big cowboy hat. I should have brought mine. And they have nice shiny cowboy boots. I don't have real cowboy boots. They're just Crocs, right? <laughs> but he has nothing to back it up. Right? They have nothing to back up. He has, he has no ranch to speak of and no cattle to eat for dinner. He is all hat and no cattle. So, you're all looking at me like, Andrew, what is the point of all of this junk? Right? Why are we talking about this? Why am I telling you all these facts about millionaires in a church service on a Sunday morning when we're all about to go out and buy kids a million Christmas presents and maybe even buy our husband a cowboy hat? Well, because, right, I don't want a church full of people who are all hat and no cattle. And even more than that, our God does not want that either. I know that's surprising to some of us, right? But listen, the God that we forge our life on, he cares about what we do with our resources. And this is the, you know, we talk about gratitude. This is the, you know, thanks giving part of it. The the fun thing about research, and this is really, really cool, the fun thing about research, no matter what I research, is that nearly every time that I read a study about human behavior or or human success, or, or I read a study about human failure, I can find it explained in the Word of God. We can find it explained in the Bibles that we hold and that we have access to. All of these found, all these things that are found in this study in this book that, are, that was done by Stanley and Danko can be boiled down to the phrase that millionaires do not live their lives walking around in a big hat with no candle. And they, can, they have something to back it up, right? But we can also see that in the word of God. Right, God, the God that we forge our life on, founded church, through one of his servants, Solomon, in the book of Proverbs, says this. In Proverbs chapter 13, verse 7, he says this. One person pretends to be rich, yet has nothing. Another pretends to be poor, yet has great wealth. Right? It sounds like a, like a big hat, no cattle kind of situation. 
Right? So while we've been in this series called Thanks and Giving, and in it we've been talking about how God, the God that we forge our life on, wants us to handle the blessings that we have in our lives. No matter where we are on that spectrum, we've been blessed. In the first week, we talked about being thankful and how true thankfulness is backed up with action. Right? That's where we move into gratitude. Last week, we talked about tithing, which is giving the first 10% of what we make back to God. And we learned that, right? Tithe, that 10% is not something that we give to God, right? It's something that we return to God because we learned that God owns everything in our lives. He owns everything in our lives from top to bottom, who we are, what we have, what we've been given, right? Getting what owns what mixed up reminds me of a story shared by Greg Lowry, a pastor in Los Angeles. Greg said an elderly woman was coming out of the grocery store when she, she noticed four grown men rummaging through her car, right? And she got scared. She prepared, though, for just an event like this. And so she nervously reached into her purse and she pulled out a 38 revolver, a handgun, out of her purse. And she screamed, okay, jerks. All right, punks. I've got a gun and I'm not afraid to use it. If you don't get out of the car, I'm going to blow your heads off, said this old lady. Well, the, the four guys that were rummaging around in the car, they, they ran off. She eventually, she calmed herself down. She placed her grocery bags into the back seat and she sat down in the driver's seat. Now, the only problem was that after about two minutes of her trying to start the car, putting the key in the ignition, she realized she, in fact, was not in her car. <laughs> that it wasn't her car. And she felt so bad, she immediately got in her real car and she drove to the police station and she turned herself in, this old lady. And the police chief who was talking with her was laughing so hard that he fell out of his seat and he pointed to four men at the counter reporting a carjacking by an old woman with thick glasses, curly white hair, less than five feet tall, and carrying a large handgun. Right, sometimes we kind of get mixed up on what and who owns what. Right? And that is what the foundation of this is. God owns it. Right? But, but the key to knowing what to do with the blessings is that we have to answer to the one who owns the blessings in the first place. And so here is the answer that the Bible, the Word of God, Foundry Church, teaches us. God owns everything, and we manage it for him. Right? God owns everything, and we manage it for him. We should be thankful because our blessings are a gift. We should return, if we're a part of a local church, 10% because our financial blessings are a gift. Everything we have is a gift, and we are asked to be good managers, good stewards of that gift. And, and so today, I'm going to wrap up this series talking about the best things we can do with our financial blessings. What we can do, right, we've talked about the 10%, so what can we do with the 90% after we tithe. And these, these things are found in the book of Proverbs, just like the verse we read earlier. And today's sermon is going to be a little different. We're going to be very practical. We're just going to look at some Proverbs, and we're going to get really, really practical today. So let's get to work. All right, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Proverbs, and our first item, or our first one that we're going to look at is going to be in Proverbs chapter 6. 
verses 1 through 11. And if you don't have a Bible, you can use the Bibles that are in the seats in front of you. And listen, you can take those Bibles with you. Uh, those Bibles are free for you to have, to use, to take. All right? You can give them away. You can keep them. All right? If you need one, you, if you know someone who needs one, take them. There's different colors. You can search afterward. All right? But Proverbs in the Old Testament, use the table of contents if you need to, is where we're going to be. Go ahead and turn to it. All right? Everybody turn to it because I don't want you to take my word for this. Take God's word for it. Get used to using his word in your life. So Proverbs chapter 6, verses 1 through 11, it's in the Old Testament, all right? It simply says this. Let me turn there, too. It says, my son, if you have put up security for your neighbor, right, if have given your pledge for a stranger, if you are snared in the words of your mouth, caught in the words of your mouth, then do this, my son, and save yourself, for you have come into the hand of your neighbor. He says, go hasten and plead urgently with your neighbor. Give your eyes no sleep and your eyelids no slumber. Save yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter, like a bird from the hand of the fowler. Verse 6 says, go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Right? The ant, without having any chief officer or ruler, she departs, or she prepares her bread in the summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. All right, so this is a pretty intense right, section, uh, passage of scripture from a father uh, to his son who has gotten into some pretty big messes financially, it looks like. But the whole point of this proverb writer, of what he's trying to make, is that debt can feel like a trap. It can feel like a chain around us. It can feel like a trap, and we have to do whatever it takes to get out of debt, so the first thing that I believe God is calling us to do, right, very practically, again, this message, right, to do with our financial blessings, that, that 90% after we return our tithe, what to do, we should do this. We should attack and pay off all consumer debt. All right, that's, that's what God's word is saying, right? This is no joke. God knows what debt can feel like and do to people, and so he wants us to attack it and to eliminate it as fast as we can. I, I, I love the way the message paraphrase puts these verses. It says it like this. I'm just going to read it for you. It says, dear friends, we have it. it says, dear friend, if you've gone into hawk with your neighbor, or if you've gone into hawk with your neighbor or lock yourself into a deal with a stranger, if you impulsively promise the shirt off your back, and now you find yourself shivering out in the cold. Friend, don't waste a minute. Get yourself out of that mess. Right? It says you're in the man's clutches. Go, put a long face, act desperate. Don't procrastinate. There's no time to lose. Run like a deer from the hunter. Fly like a bird from the trapper. Right? He's saying don't waste a minute, Foundry Church. 
right? Don't, don't waste a minute. Be, be desperate. There's no time to lose. The urgency is real. God is urgently pushing us to get out of debt. So real quick, in your Bibles, look at verse 3 and 4 there with me again. And underline, some of your translations might say exhaustion, or you can underline that, that uh, phrase, uh, no sleep, no slumber, like that, that part of the, the verse 4 there. Because in that area right there, in Hebrew, it literally means, right, the literal translation there is to throw yourself down. That's what it means, throw yourself down, right? That's a powerful image, Foundry Church, isn't it? Right, to throw yourself down on the ground, right? Have you ever watched the, the finish uh, line of a marathon, all right, you know, the, the New York Marathon was just a couple weeks ago, and if you watched the runners come in, and now I'm not talking about the, the professional people, right? I'm talking about the guy on Monday who decided that he was going to run a marathon that weekend, <laughs> right? right? Watch that dude, right, when he comes in, right? I want you to picture those guys. Think about those guys, the ones who are crawling to the finish line, and when they get there, they fall flat on their face. They're out, They're done. They are beyond exhausted. They are humbled because they made it by the work of the race. I just glanced over. I looked at David, right? He's a wrestler. It's the same thing, right? When you're wrestling a match and you're fighting and you're wrestling and you're toiling and you win and you're done, but you're just exhausted. You just can't move because you spent everything. You've done everything, right? That is what this word is meant to convey. That's what that phrase is meant to convey, to throw yourself down. It's a humbling exhaustion. And when we are, are feeling that way, it explains that there are three things that we can do to pay off debt, according to this, right? right that, that's what we should do with the remaining 90%. That's where we find ourselves. After we've tithed, we, we, and we have to pay off all consumer debt. God doesn't want us to be in debt, so he says, humble yourself. Right? Humble yourself. Right? You're going to have to swallow your pride. The, the first step, just like any issue in life, is admitting that you have a problem. And I know how embarrassing that can be, so let me get the ball rolling. Let me just be honest. Right? When Christina and I were first married, I was still in college, and she worked at an embroidery shop. We didn't even know what a dollar bill looked like, <laughs> and we made some serious mistakes living off student loans and credit cards. Right? The, the first job I had... The pay, you know, the salary, we, the financial troubles with the church, get laid off a little bit, like our salary went way down, like we're just living off credit card debt again, right? And we're still paying for those mistakes, for those stupid mistakes, right? It's humbling to say that, but today, along with you, I hope we're committing to pay off as quickly as we can all consumer debt because God knows it's a trap. It's a weight. It's a burden. It, it doesn't, God's all about freedom, <laughs> Right, his grace. And that's, this is putting ourselves in that prison. So once we've humbled ourselves, we must then do what, according to this? Develop a frugal lifestyle, it kind of says, right? The first thing we should ask is, what can we eliminate from our lifestyle? Right? How can I, I learn to control my spending? Right? Uh, Larry uh, Bucket, a financial counselor, once said this. We spent, this is a famous quote, you've heard this. We spend the first five or seven years of marriage trying to attain the same standard of living as our parents, don't we? Only it took them 35 years to do it, right? Who who are we trying to keep up with? That's the question. Is is it frugal to do so? 
And so there is some real soul searching that we may need to do to analyze our situation according to this proverb from God. And what can we do or should be doing? Right? We should be cutting out in our lifestyle. We should live frugally to get out of debt. Right? And then finally, I think uh, we can all agree that Proverbs 6 calls us for this. Right? What we read, it's, this is the King James Version. It's get off thy buttocks. Right? It's to get off thy buttocks. Right? Listen to the intensity of these words in these verses again. How long will you lie there? You sluggard? When will you get up from your sleep? Oh, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. Man, and poverty will come on you like a thief and scarcity like an armed man. Just get off thy buttocks, right? Do something. How can you sleep in when you're in debt? Get off your buttocks. (laughs) King James. Get on a bed. Get a job. Find extra money. Do something. Right, we, we don't call this place, this church, the, our, our collective group here, the foundry, because it was cool. Right? We, we, because we don't call it the foundry because we live an easy life. Right? If someone says you become a Christian, follow Christ, and you're going to have an easy life, uh, they're full of, of buttocks. Right? <laughs> we call it the foundry because sometimes we have to get off our butts. We just have to. Right? We have to put the hammer to the metal and just, and just keep swinging that and doing the hard thing. God wants the best for us. And sometimes, I know we don't hear this a lot, and sometimes the best stuff is right around the corner from the hardest stuff, from hard work. Right? And so let's move on to our next proverb to do things with the 90%, right? to live off the blessing of that 90% after we've given our, our tithe, our 10%. So the first thing, get on debt. Now, the second thing is going to be in Proverbs chapter 13. So flip over in the same book of the Bible to Proverbs chapter 13. Like I said, it's a very practical sermon. We're going to be all over the place here. Proverbs 13. This is just one verse. Verse 11 says, Wealth gained hastily will dwindle, but whoever gathers little by little will increase it. Now, when I read this verse, I think of the Holy Land and the two bodies of water that are there in the Holy Land. In Israel, there are two large bodies of water, the Sea of Galilee, right? You got the Sea of Galilee, you've heard of that maybe, and then you have the Dead Sea. Let me show you some pictures, right? This first picture, look at that. That's the Sea of Galilee. You got sheep down here. You got green fields, you got some olive trees, you got something that's, that's planted there like farmland. It's beautiful, right? It's the Sea of Galilee, right? Jesus, you know, and he fished there, right? The Sea of Galilee has a, has a river coming into one end, right? And then on the other end, it has a river coming out of it because of that, this, this, this sea, this lake, it's just teeming with life. There's a river coming in and there's a river coming out. And because of that, there's just life. There's greenery. There's vegetation. It's gorgeous. Now, let me show you a picture of the Dead Sea. That's the Dead Sea. Now, it's still beautiful, right? It's kind of pretty, it's pretty cool, right? But if you, and if you go into it, you float, right? That's kind of cool, right? All right? It's pretty cool to look at, but what do you notice? There's no life. 
There's no farmland. There's no vegetation. Right? There, there's nothing. Right? There's, that's because the Dead Sea has, has, uh, does not have a river that's going into it. Right? I'm sorry. It does have a river going into it, but it has no river going out. There's no outlet. Does that make sense? Right? So it's just dead. With no outlet, the water is putrefied. It's concentrated salt, and that's why you float. There's a reason it's called a Dead Sea. It's because nothing living is in the Dead Sea. Right? And, and what we're supposed to be like is the Sea of Galilee. All right? Go back to that picture, Jeremy. We're supposed to have the blessings of God flow into us and then grow them and use them to bless others. And we are meant to be instruments through which God channels resources. So here's, here's the truth that I want us to look at right here. Right? God wants to channel money through us to help people find their way back to him. Right, and we're going to look at this, right? right? When God gives us resources, when we have that other 90% in our life, and we turn and we give those resources to help guide people to forge a lifelong reliance on him, including our families, including the, the person across the room and across the hallway, across the street, uh, through missions. Remember, like Croatia, we might be going on a mission trip this summer. Right? That's why, why spending some time and spending some money to do that is important, Right? so that we can spread the, the grace and the truth of Jesus, who we forged our life on, with others. Right, God keeps giving us more resources when we do that. When God gives us resources and we don't give them away, we become like the Dead Sea. Useless. Right Now, many of us, we, we've been Christians for years, and, and we've never fully embraced this, and we wonder why things in our life keep tasting like salt. This is the reason. Tuck your toes in, stepping on them a little bit. I get it, right? God says that 10%, that's mine. You give that to me and you live off the 90% in a way that I'm calling you to live, right? And I'll bless you because of it. That's why last week we committed ourselves to tithe that 10% and our, of our income. But there's more than just getting out of debt and tithing. And that's this final thing that God wants for us in our financial blessing, Right? To, to live with that 90%. He wants us, right? and I know, accumulate wealth by saving for the future. Now, I know it's a little weird to think about that in church. Let's read that, that Proverbs again. Verse 11, right? Wealth, is, wealth gained hastily will dwindle, but whoever gathers little by little will increase it. Little by little, the Lord will bless us with gifts, and we should save those to bless others right? We, we should not go out looking for ways to get hastily rich. The lottery is not the answer to all of our problems. I hate to say it, right? I mean, if you want to go buy a ticket, go for it, but that shouldn't be our retirement plan, <laughs> right? God's solution is to develop the discipline to save money little by little, and then it will increase. Now, I get it. This is weird. Talking about money on church, every time a preacher does the money sermon, there's guests, right? <laughs> But listen, God cares about our life from the top to the bottom, including our resources that he's blessed us with. It's just the way that it is. If we forge our life on God, everything is his, right? And he talks more about giving and, and wealth than any other topic in the New Testament. Jesus does. Now, whenever, here's the problem. Whenever we start talking about generating wealth, 
there's this Christian subculture, this voice that immediately starts talking in the back of my head, and it says like this. It says, don't tell them to become wealthy. That's sinful. So, you know, or I get that in emails, right? And you can, you, you know, I'll get that email, right? <laughs> but let me ask a simple question. It's this. Is it more spiritual to be poor? Right? I mean... How many of us grew up in churches that basically taught that the poorer you are, the more spiritual you are? That's what I heard, right? I, I never actually heard it put just like that, but I basically came away with that idea. And I think I got that because of a few things. The, right, the, the saying that the money is the root of all evil, that Bible quote, right? you hear it all the time. Well, have you actually looked up that verse, not just taking someone's word for it? Because 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10 Right, I'm going to put it on the screen. You can look it up in your Bibles. Take, don't take my word for it. Look it up. Right? But it says this, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money. Right? They have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Right? There is a pretty important word there that we keep leaving out of this quote. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Loving money is the problem. But if we remember that the rightful owner, right, going back to the very beginning of the series, the rightful owner of our finances, God, owns it, and we love him first by handling our money the way he tells us to, like getting out of debt if we're in debt, not getting in debt if we're not in debt yet, right? Uh, attacking it with all that we have, saving money little by little, using it for his kingdom, right? Giving our tithes, then we'll stay on a trouble. The other thing that, that made me think that, this, that it was more spiritual to be poor was, well, Jesus was poor, right? And so in my mind growing up, I'm like, ah, Jesus was poor. I, I just kind of assumed that if I was to model my life after Jesus, and I take that very seriously, I was born on Christmas, right? <laughs> so if, I, if I'm going to model myself after Jesus, I should be poor too, and he was poor. And so the poorer I became, the closer to Jesus I was. For years, I had this idea that Jesus was mad at rich people. But that's, that's absolutely false. Right? What we have to realize is that, that the, 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 the God that we forge our life on, that the, some of the people that are, that are doing that, Kingdom-influencing people have been people who cultivated an approach to life that consistently built wealth, and they used that wealth for each other and for God's kingdom and to bless the, their, their, their kids and their grandkids. As again, it says in, in Proverbs, it's a good thing to leave an inheritance for your kids and for even your kids' kids. Right? Think of the, the woman named Martha, and this is what got me really thinking about this. Martha. Right, we've heard of her, maybe. Right, well, if you don't know, she was a friend of Jesus in the Gospels. Jesus spent, that's in the New Testament, when Jesus was walking around on earth. Jesus spent three whole years of his ministry walking. That's what he did. He walked from one area called Galilee to the city of, city of Jerusalem, back and forth. Two miles outside of Jerusalem, there lived a wealthy woman by the name of Martha. All right? All right, Luke chapter 10, verse 38 says this. As, as Jesus and his disciples were on their way, and not, this wasn't just once, this was multiple times, when they are on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. 
Now listen, Founder, this, this passage is significant for a couple reasons. First, in, in that day, women didn't own property. And so, so that highlights the importance that Jesus put on women in ministry, in church, right? Because he's like talking good about her, right? So don't, don't say that Jesus, Christians, whatever. Like Jesus is saying, this, this woman's powerful. She's a good lady, right? So this passage is significant for a couple reasons. First, during that time period, women didn't own property. Second, Jesus had a pretty large posse with him. So this house must have been huge, right? It was like my friend's house growing up. He had an indoor pool. Like, his house was amazing, right? Martha's house probably had an indoor pool. Um, but listen, it was so big that Luke chapter 11, verse 39 tells us that she had a sister named Mary who lived with her. And presumably, all of Mary's children as well. And then in John 11, when we read that, it leads us to believe that Mary's brother Lazarus lived with them as well. So over time, Mary's house became like this base of operations for Jesus when he came to Jerusalem. right? And he had a huge posse with him. So, so here was this woman who had cultivated a lifestyle of building wealth. She was a wealthy woman. She had two other families, her family, and two other families living with her. And she cared for Jesus and all of his disciples and all everyone that was traveling with him. Right? And what does Jesus say to her? Nothing. Nothing. He didn't tell her to sell it and all give it to the poor like he's done for other people in the Gospels. Right? He, didn't, he didn't tell her that she was going to go to hell for being rich. Jesus knew that her heart was in the right place. Right? And Martha knew that her money, that her house, that her resources were gifts from God. And if Jesus needed them for his purpose, he could nudge her and she would give it to him gladly. And she did. Over and over again, she housed and fed and took care of and led Right, look, look at this. Possessing wealth is not the problem. Being possessed by wealth is the problem, right? So what happens is this. We, when people think money is evil, they just subconsciously choose an approach to life that regularly depletes their savings, and they never have any money. Dave Ramsey, the financial coach, uh, radio host, he puts it like this. He says, if wealth is spiritually bad, then good people can't have it. So all the bad people will get it. And if, all, if we all abandon money because some misguided souls view it as evil, then the only ones with money will be the pornographer, the drug dealer, or the pimp. So let's commit to saving money, right? That's what, one of the things we do with the 90% that's left over for us. And here are the reasons why. Right? First, things will come up. Right? You know that, right? You guys with kids know that better than I know that. Right? There's no doubt that we, that we have needs that arise in our lives and in our family's lives. And if we don't have money, we have to go into debt to pay for them. And we've already discussed debt is not the way of God. He doesn't want us to do that. Right? And if you don't want to go into debt and you don't want to have another, uh, other people pay for your stuff, you have to start saving now. And I'm not just talking about money for, for basic things. Sometimes, right, you, you got to save for those things. But I'm also talking for, for, for those inheritance like it talks about in Proverbs, right? But we got we to gotta save money for when the car breaks down. We got to save money for a new roof. Sometimes you have kids that have a growth spurt in the middle of the school year like, like dummies, right? 
and you got to spend money that you weren't planning on spending, right? These things will happen, and God wants us to be ready. All right, next, we should save money because of this. Having fun is not a sin, right? You see, not all wants are wrong. We'll have godly wants in our life that we will need money for, and if we don't have it, we won't experience God's best in our life. At some point, all right, you're going to want your kids maybe to go to college or trade school, or you yourself are going to want to go to college or to a trade school, right? You may want to retire at some point, <laughs> right? Maybe, right? right? You may want to retire. You may want to go elk hunting in Utah. <coughs> Christina. <coughs> All right? Listen, church, God wants us to enjoy this life. Having fun is okay, and it's okay to save for those fun things. We just can't get carried away. And again, right, the love of money is the root of evil. We can do it with the right priorities. There's nothing wrong with three chocolate chips, uh, three chocolate chip cookies on occasion, 13 chocolate chips, ch- chocolate chip cookies every night. That's, the pr- that's a problem, right? We see this this playing out, right? Finally, we should save money because of this. God may want you to meet kingdom needs, right? God may want you to meet kingdom needs. God may be calling you now to prepare yourself to come here on whatever the bulletin says for that mission trip training, right? And to start saving the the money to get that plane ticket, to go to Croatia and to study the Bible with people who are eager to study the Bible, with teenagers who are eager to learn about God, right? God may want you to meet kingdom needs. So just like the things come up in our lives, genuine kingdom needs may arise that God will want you to help meet, right? And the Bible calls these things offerings, right? When we tie 10% of our income to God through the local church, wherever we are, that's an obligation, right? That's something that he's commanded us, that he wants us to do. There's no decision about that. It has to happen. But when we do an Easter offering, or if there's a Christmas offering, or if you know of a family in need, or, or there's, there's a kid at camp who, who, or a kid who needs to go to camp, but, but their family can't afford it, like you can step in, right? That's why we're the family of God. That's why we're an army. We're doing things together, right? When you're approached by a missionary to support their efforts, when we go above and beyond our type, that's an offering. Yeah, listen, just a side note. Getting off script, Jeremy. Be careful now. <laughs> All right, so we give. We give our tithes. But listen, there's no better place to give charity to than through the church anyways either. All right, we give our tithes and our offerings. We, we, we partner together with God. We do that. But listen, I mean, the church does work around the world, right? That's why it's important to save so you can partner with those things, right? You can fill boxes with 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 Operation Christmas Child with your kids. You have the money to do that. You have the money to go on the mission trip. You have the money to, to support a, a, a hospital of some sort. You, you know, you, you have that, right? And all those things are started by the church, by, by people who believe and forge their life on God. So as the, the band comes up, let me do just a quick recap. Uh, let's go over everything that we have learned during this series. First, it's this, being truly thankful to God requires action, right? That's gratitude, right? And then we learn we should commit and attack and pay off all consumer debt. We looked at that t- today. That was the first point. And then we decided we should commit to accumulate wealth by saving for the future, right? And we looked at that again today. And last week, again, we looked we should commit to tithe 10% of our income to God 
through a local church, no matter where we are, right? If you call the founder of your home, that's our local group, right? If you move to, to Utah, you're part of a local church, you tithe, right? And so what, our hospitality team last week, we passed out these 90-day tithing challenge cards. Now, some of you weren't here, and if you call the Foundry Church your home, I want you to go ahead and grab one of these, um, and I want you to fill it out. And everybody should fill it out, right? Because there's a box there that says, yeah, I'm a part of the Foundry. The Foundry's my home, and I already tithe. I'm just, you know, committing to keep continuing to do that, right? And then if, if, if you're new to, uh, and, and you've never tithed before, like I'm saying, if you're new to this concept in tithing, and you just click that and say, I'm going to do this 90-day tithing challenge. And so I want everyone to grab one of these, and uh, Kirsten's going to pass them out. And as she's passing it out, let me just read it here, because this is what this is. Because last week we talked about how God says, and this is the only area where God says, the Lord that we forge our life on, where he says, test me, test me. You guys think you got this figured out? He says, test me. All right, and he says, that, he says, test me. And so, so if you want to test God in this, you click this, you fill this out, all right? And you put it in the offering plates on your way out. And if you didn't, if you were here last week and you thought about it and you want to do it, fill it out, do it. It says, test me in this, all right? Or, or if, you're, if you did it, you were here last week and you're already tithed and you didn't fill it out, just fill it out. There's something about saying, God, I'm going to commit to continue to do this. You can drop those in the, the offering plates on your way out. That's the 10%. The other 90%. That's where we step up. Debt. Saving. Budgets. None of that fun stuff. All right? And it's weird to talk about it at church, we think. But God says, you know what? A lot of times, I said it last week, there's a story about the Knights Templar. Right? They, uh, they, they get baptized and they leave their, their hand out of the water with their sword, right? They, they, they go down to the water. They, they're, they're baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They're, they're submerged under the water, but they leave their arm out with their sword. And I used to think, man, that's cool. That's awesome. But listen, when you look at that, you think, man, that's them saying, God, you can have my heart. You can have my life. You can have everything but this. Because what I do on the battlefield, I don't want you there, God. You're not the Lord of my life on the battlefield, right? right? You, I don't need you there, God. I don't want you there, God. You can have everything but this. And I'm just being honest. I think in the American church, heck, in, in, I've, I've traveled enough around the world. In the church today, all around the world, the, the thing that we have, it's sitting there by Barrett, my bad is our wallet. Uh, you know, and that's sad. And, and a lot of times there's usually something else, you know, like my pride, my ego, my status, whatever, my success. But a lot of that, all those things, those and things are usually tied to our resources in some way or in some fashion. And we say, God, you can have everything. My heart, my mind, my soul, you can have my life. I'm just going to keep this over here. Have all this. Have every, Have 99.9%, but I'm going to keep this. And that's what we do. And God says, hey, don't. 
Test me in this. Test me, he says, in this. Give the 10%. Live in an honorable way with the 90% and see that the floodgates of heaven are going to open up in your life. Right? And again, we know that's not just mean we're going to get, 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 but it's going to allow us to give and to be a part of a church and a movement and to, to make a difference with the blessings he's given us. To be a Martha, a kick-butt woman <laughs> in a time when, when women were cut down. He says, I'm, I'm going I'm to lead this way because no one else can. I'm going to. That's pretty cool. And so as we stand and as we worship, fill off this 90-day tithe challenge. If that's something you want to do, if you call the foundry your home. All right, everybody, if you call the foundry your home, you should be clicking one of those boxes there. All right? Drop it in the offering on your way out, in that plate on the way out. But also, as we sing this next song, remember that our God wants all of us. Because he wants a life for us that is abundant and a life that is full. And again, that's not the easiest of life, but that's a life of purpose, power, uh, adventure, uh, a life of, of just aggressiveness that goes after God, that goes after the things that he calls us to go after with a tenacity that's like none other. You think, I can't do that. I can't live off of 90%. I can't give 10%. I can't, I've got so much debt. I can't, I can't do that. Or I can't even, I can't read my Bible. I can't practice spiritual. God wants me to do what? He wants me to, he wants me to go to camp with the kids as a chaperone. He wants me to teach downstairs. He wants me to work in the I can't do that stuff. I can't, I can't invite my neighbor over for dinner. They're so different than I am. God says you can do it. But even more than that, he says, I'm with you. Our creator, Foundry Church, is with us. He's with us as we go and as we are his hands and as we're his feet. He's with us.